On TV Concierge, The Ringer staff delivers a guide to the vast streaming landscape by discussing one show or movie per day, including premieres, the latest surprise Netflix hits, periodic check-ins on favorite TV shows, new movies available for streaming, and the host's favorite shows to watch right away. Check out TV Concierge exclusively on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by USAA Auto Insurance. Life is full of tough decisions. Thanks to USAA Auto Insurance, picking your auto coverage is not one of them. Make the switch to USAA Auto Insurance and find out how much you could save. Get a quote today. Restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Hulu, where this March there are enough new shows and movies to keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Stream the all-new documentary Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale set in Japan. And we are covering that on the Prestige TV podcast, by the way. All this and more is on Hulu this month. So what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Coming up, I am the Lizard King. I can do anything. The Doors is next. There are things known and things unknown. And in between you know are the doors. An Oliver Stone film. The doors rated R. See it March 1st at theaters everywhere. All right, Chris Ryan is here. Chuck Klosterman is here. We brought in the big guns to discuss the 30th anniversary of one of the weirdest, most flawed, most entertaining, most memorable movies of the early 90s, The Doors, about Jim Morrison. It was a highly anticipated movie. It was a um, banged around Hollywood project for at least 10 years before it finally happened. And it has a fascinating legacy. Chris, I'll start with you. The legacy of this movie is Val Kilmer. This is yeah. the Val Kilmer is the guy from Top Secret and Top Gun, and we don't know if he's a star, and then he blows everybody away. And 30 years later, it still blows me away. There are biographical films like Malcolm X or Lincoln where you're watching the movie and you can be really impressed because you know that this actor is doing a really good job in the performance of Malcolm X or Abraham Lincoln, Daniel Day-Lewis or Denzel Washington. When I watch The Doors... I am like, that is Jim Morrison. Like, I have actual, like, problems understanding whether or not somehow I am watching Jim Morrison in a movie about Jim Morrison with Kyle MacLachlan and Kevin Dillon. <laughs> and it, it, he, Val Kilmer so disappears into the role because I think it's just like that one in 20,000 chance that he just looks just like him and is able to act just like him. And it's so much so that I just kind of associate everything I associate with Jim Morrison with Val Kilmer. Chuck, did this change how you even think of Jim Morrison, where it's hard to, where Val Kilmer merges into Jim Morrison and it becomes some sort of double person? Well, yeah. I mean, like what Chris says is completely right. I mean, and and typically like, say like the, you know, um, like when Jim Carrey was in the Andy Kaufman movie. Okay? Yeah. He does a great job in the same way, but it seems like he's doing an impersonation. What is interesting about this is how much he seems like Jim Morrison without the sense that he is impersonating him. Like they just, I, I don't even know what that means. How do you can be like someone and, and not just trying to sort of replicate what they look like um, and, and how they talk and everything. Um, you know, the, it, it is, there's a lot, this definitely, you know, when this movie came out, 
I was like in the spring and I, I saw it the opening night I was in college. It was a packed theater. And for the next two months, when you'd walk around the college campus, you just hear the doors music kind of coming out of everywhere. So it seemed as though this sort of, you know, uh, like restarted this resurgence of interest in the doors. But I think now it's pretty clear that this movie has really damaged the way the doors are perceived and that this was ultimately a, um, a, a real kind of negative thing for the band in terms of how they're remembered. Yeah. I had the same thing. I saw this movie in college and I've said this before on the podcast. This is like one of five or six movies in my life where I went and saw it again in the theater. I thought it was so great. I had always liked the doors. It started the same thing for me. Like one of those two, two month doors, deep dives where you go and you, you you're a doors two guy. Books. I never would have pegged you. for oh, a doors yeah. guy. I had, I had two big runs, one in high school, went away and then one in college. And it's interesting in the research of this movie, you know, there's a lot of stuff I had forgotten about in the early 80s. There's this whole Doors revival. And it starts with, it basically starts with Apocalypse Now and then playing the end in 1979. At the same time, they have a Greatest Hits album. This was right at the stage of when Greatest Hits albums were reigniting bands' careers, like the Eagles, the Doors, things like that. There was a TV tribute show that I don't remember that was apparently a big deal. No One Gets Out of Here Alive was, the book came out. And then Rolling Stone in 1981 had the cover Jim Morrison, he's hot, he's sexy, he's dead, which I remember. And that's when John Travolta started doing the movie. So that revival starts then. And it really kind of goes through the decade with this, with this project. They can never get it done. They can never get it made. They can never find the right person. And it's amazing that they catch Val Kilmer at this point of his career when he's the perfect all-time guy to play Jim Morrison. And we didn't even mention he's not lip syncing. He's singing all these songs. And this is why Chris, like Rami Malek wins for Freddie Mercury for, uh, for the queen movie, which I, I think we all thought was, you know, as watchable as it was, was not a great movie, but he lip synced all the songs yeah. yes. and he wins the Oscar. Val Kilmer, not even nominated for an Oscar for this. And should he have won like a Grammy all time Oscar travesties <laughs> ever. He doesn't even get a best actor nomination. So who were the na nominees that year? I have that. So Anthony Hopkins wins for Silence. It's hard to argue. Which we litigated on the Silence pod, even though he's only in it for 18 minutes. It's such a powerful 18 minutes. I'm okay with best actor for him. De Niro's in here for Cape Fear. I'm okay with that. Gets a little dicey after that. Warren Beatty for Bugsy. Oh man, I remember that. Nick Nolte for The Prince of Tides, which was a thing at the time. I can see it. And then Robin Williams for The Fisher King. For Val Kilmer not to nudge out one of those three is incredible to me considering he sang all the songs in this movie. Yeah, he's amazing in this movie and the physicality of it is the thing. It's like for as much as I think it's notable that he sings, which is mind-blowing, <laughs> he actually also gets all of Morrison's mannerisms on stage and off and creates this kind of language, physical language of the guy that is just as impressive as the, as the audio stuff that he does. Chuck, people impersonating musicians. Over the years, Jamie Foxx wins for Ray Charles. Angela Bassett nominated for Tina Turner. Rami Malek wins for Freddie Mercury. J-Lo, her career took off when she did uh, Selena. Joaquin Phoenix got nominated as Johnny Cash. Gary Busey got nominated as Buddy Holly. Sissy Spacek won for Loretta Lynn. Jessica Lange nominated for Patsy Cline. Diana Ross nominated for the Billie Holiday movie. Um, I think Val Kilmer is the best of all of those. Where, where does it rank for you 
in terms of an actor playing a musician, but becoming the musician? Is this first? Yeah, I, I think this is first. I mean, I even I think that it would probably be in contention for being first if he didn't sing the songs. Um, the fact that he does sing the songs, you know, I I think there's a lot of people who aren't even aware of that. I think they I just assume that because, you know, they're using real Doors music in a lot of the film. And it's only when he's actually like on stage singing songs. And, you know, early in the movie, when they're on the beach and he sings the first song to Ray Manzarek and Ray Manzarek is that's a great song. You know, let's start a band. Even Those are great I lyrics, I don't man. Play, I don't play a conventional rock instrument, but let's start the, you know, um, the, uh, he does when he sings that little section, he, he doesn't sound that good. Let's swim to the moon. Uh-huh. Let's climb through the tide. Penetrate the evening that the city sleeps too high you know like it doesn't it doesn't sound as though boy this person is 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 a is a you know credible vocalist so then i think a lot of people watch the rest of the film assuming like in most of these films that he is just sort of lip-syncing along and uh so you know it there, there's it, it's it really goes beyond though like the performative stuff which is great i mean it just it has more to do with kind of the the effect of his expression like early in the film when he's in L.A. and he's kind of wandering around or when he hitchhikes there the first time, he has this look on his face um, that, uh, you know, the, the, the kind of expression, there's just a kind of person who's like on drugs all the time, even when they're not. Right. He kind of has that look. And that was a very, you know, um, but I, I will say this, I I'm not sure uh, how much I know what Jim Morrison was like for real. And I think that this movie in some ways has replaced that in my mind. So I, I think it's almost now like I'll see footage of Jim Morrison from the period he was alive. And I'll be like, oh, wow, he's, he's, he's doing Bell Kilmer very well. <laughs> but that was also a big point of contention among the other bandmates was that they that Stone didn't quite capture like the totality of like, I'm sure Jim Morrison was a guy who was like, you know, would watch a USC game on TV or something like that. You know, like, it sounds like he was funny. It sounds like he was personable in various times, and he wasn't always, always, always on acid. Well, I mean, if you if you watch this movie, you would have to come away with the, and, that's, and it's all you knew, you would have to assume the other doors hated being in the doors. They're never happy. And yet I can't really think of a band where the surviving members have worked harder to promote the legacy of that band. I mean, the remaining Doors are more interested in the Doors than the Beatles and Led Zeppelin combined are interested <laughs> in their groups. Well, it's not even close. I mean, it's like they're just like they, I think that now it's possible. Some, it could be that like, that really was a tough period and we need to get something out of this. We need to be remembered as being important or whatever. Um, but I think because this movie did change the way the doors are remembered, it has almost sort of galvanized their desire to, to kind of take hold of the legacy of it. Because like I say, it's like, it, I, I do like the queen movie ultimately helped queen. Like it's going to help them over time. This hurt the doors. I think there's no way around it. There's just like no way to argue that the way the doors were perceived certainly in rock circles prior to this movie um, was not superior to how it was perceived by say the end of the nineties or, or now. 
and it became a cautionary tale for any band or any like singer in their estate or whoever. If you're going to make a movie out of it, don't let it be like the Doors movie where basically the last hour of the movie is about what a drunk maniac Jim Morrison was. But at the same time, um, he kind of was a drunk maniac. And this is 20 years after uh, the Doors basically break up. And I, I think it's really important to put in a context. This is 1991. They've been around for about 20 years. And you just think about like the Britney Spears documentary, which wasn't even that good. And revived this whole nostalgic Britney Spears, Britney Spears, that era, TRL, all that stuff. And, you know, it's the right amount of time to look back at that stuff. And with the doors, this was the right amount of time. And this is why people were trying to uh to figure out how do we make this doors movie? Because classic rock was still gigantic. People were still really nostalgic for, you know, the Rolling Stones, Beatles, Woodstock, all of these things from that kind of love love, peace and war, the Vietnam era, like all that stuff was in vogue. And there was a lot riding on this movie with Oliver Stones. People were like, this is going to be amazing. And I don't think it was totally what they thought it was going to be. Well, you know, like in 1990, Jim Morrison was on the cover of Spin. Mm-hmm. I mean, which is really weird, but the issue was 35 years of rock, okay? Because they were like basically saying rock had started in 1955. Now we're at 1990. This guy, you see like, you know, he was like this kind of this alcoholic, drug addict, madman. That is true. That's how he was perceived in 1990. But an alcoholic, drug addict, madman who was sort of tapping in to kind of the fantasy or illusion of what people like about rock. After this movie, it seemed like people thought of Jim Morrison as an alcoholic, drunken madman who was full of shit. That really is kind of, you you get that sense uh, as this movie moves on that a lot of the things he's, you know, it it also, it, it plays up certain aspects of of his interest that makes it seem, you know, like I, I think that they're really more tied now in to the concept of like rock pretension than they were prior to this. Bill, to your point though, so that you know, Oliver Stone does another movie in 1991, very important to us, JFK. It might be coming up later this year in the rewatchables. I saw JFK in the theater. I don't think I saw the doors in the theater. I was just in the beginning of high school, but I saw JFK with my mom. And I remember being out in the parking lot after we saw that movie. And the way she had reacted to that movie was so, which was really vulnerably. You know what I mean? Obviously, like JFK's assassination was this huge, huge moment in her life. And to see it depicted on screen like that really shook her up. And I kind of didn't get it because to me, that was like ancient history. That might as well have been like, you know, the Wild West, like the 60s didn't register for me. But the same thing is true for this movie for people who maybe grew up with the doors. And like, this movie is not, as when this movie was made, it was not as far away from the actual thing that it was talking about as we think it is now. You know what I mean? We think of this as like, oh yeah, that's like Mad Men era. You know? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's like so long ago. But for 1991 to do a 19 late 60s, early 70s project was pr- it would be like doing a Nirvana movie now, right? No, but it's not. It's not though. It's you don't not. think so? Well, the the gap, the cultural gap between say 1971 and 1991 is much greater than even the gap from 1991 to now. I mean, the way that these... I disagree. Well, okay, like... Oh, it absolutely is, Bill. Because when you... Okay, like... There's this idea that uh, there's this... Maybe uh, the slow cancellation of the future. There's this guy, Mark Fisher. Are you familiar with him, Chris? No. He's like, he's written a book about horror films called like The Weird and the Eerie. He was kind of one of Simon Reynolds' buddies. But he talks about the slow cancellation of the future, which is that 
Once basically the internet became central to everything, our relationship to time changed. And then if you took music from 1991, so let's say you took like Nirvana and like oh, Low End Theory and Blood Sugar Sex Magic, I think all those records came on mm-hmm. the same day, and you brought them back to 1971 and played them for people, they would be like, this isn't music. What is right. this? Like it would make right. no sense to them. But that sort of ends when we move into the 21st century. You could take any music that's kind of available now and play to people in 2001, and it would not seem crazy. And in fact, his example is he talks about like an Arctic Monkey song that he hears in like, say, 2010, and he actually assumes it's a post-punk band he missed entirely, that everything is sort of marginally retro now. So like when the Doors came out in 91, it seemed like they were talking about a band that's pretty distant. Hmm. Um, But I wouldn't say any more distant than we think of them now. Okay. That's interesting. I get what you're saying. Um, the greatest hits album factor cannot be underestimated. It was a huge part of the eighties, you know, and it, like the Eagles greatest hits album, I think is the greatest selling album of all time. The doors had a really good greatest hits album. And it was one we listened to in high school and in college. And it had the perfect blend of songs. And there's some songs on that album that I still think are really great. Like I think LA woman is, I still really like that song. Even now, if it came out, I would get fired up. So I do feel like there were stakes with not only the, the musical performances in this movie, but who was playing Jim Morrison, because at that point he was a little bit mythical. Right. And Kilmer, who was basically goose from Top Gun. I mean, I mean, I'm sorry, Iceman from Top Gun, the guy who just went toe to toe with Cruz and was on HBO a few times. I think it, I, it, it, that's why I went to see it in the theater twice. I just couldn't believe how good he was at Jim Morrison. So I did some research. He learned 50 songs, 15 of which were per- performed in the film. He spent his own money on an audition video to try to convince Stone to give him the gig because Stone wanted a bigger star. Spent hundreds of hours with Paul Rothschild, the Doors producer who's in the movie, uh, play, being played by an actor. And then when it finally got to the point where he performed, they played it for the doors and they couldn't tell who was who between <laughs> him and Jim Morrison. Like that's how good he was. And the concert scenes did all the own did all his own singing. They played the doors master tapes, but removed Morrison's vocals. And he would just sing and they would have these concert sequences, which Stone said it took several days to film. And Kilmer's voice would start to deteriorate after a couple takes. So they had to be really careful. Um, about how they did. Same thing with the end, which took that sequence took five days to shoot, 24 takes. And then Kilmer, between takes, is doing that whole thing where he's like, I'm Jim Morrison. I'm not Val Kilmer. I'm ta- I'm behaving, talking like Val Kilmer the entire time. He put so much of himself into this. He said afterwards he had to like see a therapist. Like he couldn't break out of the character. So it was one of those <laughs> things. Um, I bet he was surprised he didn't win, get a Best Actor nomination. But to me, it's one of the most memorable performances of the 90s. Like, I don't know what the complete list is, but if you if you just asked me to list off the top of my head, most important performance of the 90s, I would put this on there. And I, I don't think it has that kind of legacy, Chuck. The, oh, the, like the memory of him as an actor? The Val Kilmer in The Doors, I feel like, should be discussed with the great 90s performances, and I'm not sure it is. Well, it is odd because I feel like very often when people talk about like the great Val Kilmer performance, they use Tombstone as the example. Right. I, I, and, that, that there, and there seems to be more of a positive feeling toward his performance in that movie. Um, I think that there is 
generally a negative feeling toward this film, which I, you know, I've seen probably five times and I'm watching it again. It is interesting because it is a very flawed movie. And yet in this kind of the conceit you have of rewatchability, it really does kind of fit that yeah. quality that if you just happen to see it, because also it's any kind of, a, you know, a fictional version of nonfiction events, you can kind of just drop in anywhere. Um, it seems to me clearly like his, the best performance of his career. Uh, but I'm also prone to think of that because I like rock stars more than cowboys. Well, we talk about, you know, if you played this piece of music for somebody in 2001 or if you played this piece of music for somebody in 1970, I don't think that this movie is very in vogue right now. I don't think this movie, it's, it it may, it may have aged well for the three of us, but I don't think this is how people do, um, biopics anymore. You know what I mean? Like they don't don't, make these sort of, so they're hagiographies. Yeah, it's an, but it's also an impressionistic fever dream. You're often just like, wait, so did they record two other albums here? Or, you know, it's basically broken up into four major live performances, I think, and a bunch of these other scenes that are kind of sprinkled throughout. But as a biography, you have very little understanding of why Jim Morrison became who he was and what happened to the doors. It's a, it is a strange, com- you're, you're right. It's a strange combination of things because it is in some ways impressionistic, you know, like when they're watching him on stage and suddenly he's dated, dancing with these Native Americans again and the whole, like, like it doesn't ever explicitly say that he believes that he became possessed by the spirit of this guy, but you can kind of figure that out. And yet at the same time, it often does the thing that makes me love biopics because I have a weird obsession with biopics. I love insanely expository dialogue. <laughs> like, I love it when they're like, it's like, we took drugs to expand our mind, not to escape. They're like, you know, they're like, they're on the beach. And Ray, they're walking on the beach and Ray Van Zarek looks out over the water and goes, Vietnam is over there. Like, like just, I love that. I love when movies do that because I always think about this is like, okay, so like, let's say, like they made a biopic about you, Bill. Okay. So yeah. every, it's about your life. It would okay. be exactly one, like the doors. Yeah, at yeah. one point, at one point, there would have to be a situation like where like Chris looks at you and is like, Prantlin worked, but we gotta do something different with the ringer. <laughs> it's like you always gotta have, you know, you gotta basically boil down. Donald Trump is over there, yeah, man. Yeah, yes, yes. <laughs> it's like you get it's because what happens is in life, you know, and in, in mediated life and or in regular life, we're always sort of talking around the idea we what we really feel. Like we're trying to explain what somebody represents or what we think of something, but we don't directly say it. In a biopic, you do. You have someone say exactly what, say, six months of thought and conversation boils down to, and I just find it hilarious. And in this movie, they go back and forth between kind of an abstraction of Jim Morrison's life and people literally reading from a really poorly written story about him. Like he's like in, when the, when he's in the movie class, okay. So he makes this movie, and it's just, you know, and then they're, 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 it creates this polarizing effect in the class. So one guy in the class is like, "It's better than a Warhol movie," and someone's great response is, "No, it isn't." And the guy goes, "He made a movie of a guy sleeping." It's yeah. like, okay, just, this movie yeah. has no social conscience. Yes, yes. And then Raven Sarah comes down, and he's like. Jim, don't believe him. This is brilliant, okay? Just so you know, I'm kind of your hype man and all your crazy ideas. I might lose patience later, but right now, I like what you're doing. Like, I think that is just, I, you know, I, 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 I find, that, like, the biopic I know is, like, considered almost like the lowest level of, of, of filmmaking in some ways, and yet I will watch anyone about any figure who is legitimately 
famous. Because what these movies are trying to do is somehow explain the way people understand fame. And they have to do it in the fastest way possible. Right. Bill, did you did you take peyote and turn to house and say, what if I wrote about the draft as it was happening? Draft no, diaries. That's, that's what would have to happen. It would, have, it would be like house going like, boy, you know, we really like the draft, but I wish somebody would write about the way it feels to watch it. And I was like, what about a diary? And then I climb on yeah, a car yeah. and I start timestamping it. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I'm with you, Chuck. Some of my favorite scenes in this movie, like I love, we'll get into it with rewatchables, but I love the last time he sees the doors when he's going around. Yeah, and he's just And he like, goes to Frank Whaley and Frank Whaley's like, I played music with Dionysus. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's just like, who, who says that to another yeah. human being? As or a farewell. Like, even when he walks up there, the guy's like, hey, we added rain effects to writers on the storm. Yeah. It's like, oh, they're doing that right now? Five minutes before this child's birthday party, we're putting rain effects on the yeah. um it, Yeah, uh, hold on, hold on. The cake's coming out. Can you yeah, press pause uh, on the rain effects? Um we should mention the Oliver Stone piece of this. So this is the direct moment in Oliver Stone's career where he loses his mind. Because up to now he's done. You know, he he does Platoon and Wall Street, Born on the Fourth of July. Those are movies rooted in sanity, but he's gone for big themes. Starting with The Doors is when he just unravels as a filmmaker, for better or worse. He's got The Doors, JFK, Natural Born Killers. He does Nixon. He does that crazy Any Given Sunday, which we love, which we've done on the rewatchables. But um, he almost has to do the Oliver Stone on steroids for any movie he does. And th and there's no better example of this. There was an easier way to do this movie, and he's just like, fuck it, I'm doing the weird way. Well, I would say that what you're talking about, I feel really that happens during Natural Born Killers. I feel like that is when, like, these movies, like JFK... And, I can't believe you don't think that happened to a JFK. Well, JFK, JFK is, like, is insane. Yeah. I know it is, but have you guys been watching that Adam Curtis documentary? Yeah. That's been like, yeah. Okay. Like, can't, can't get you Moore, out of my head. He talks about Garrison in that. And, and it's odd because he's kind of like takes Garrison seriously, which hadn't yeah. happened in so long. So like, maybe that did work out. Like maybe, maybe all of you, know, um, what's also interesting is Oliver Stone was perceived as being so insane for forwarding the idea of like a you know the just JFK conspiracy, but at the time a majority of the United States believed that there was some kind of conspiracy involved with JFK's assassination. It was like right, fifty five. So it was like that's how different conspiracies were looked at in the early nineties. That if you made a movie about a conspiracy that most people believed, he was still widely criticized. Bill, I think that Chuck's right. Like. I would almost be curious to see the version of the doors made by the natural born killers filmmaker. Like the like doors just go to completely me off the rails. Is, for for as much as they have like those those vision quests and stuff, it is pretty straightforward in places. It's pretty linear. It's pretty much like there are these five or six major events that we need to capture. There's Ed Sullivan show, there's this show in San Francisco, there's there's New Haven, there's Miami. But I kind of watching back some of his movies from that era and especially JFK and, and natural born killers where he's doing all this multimedia stuff and all this wild cutting. I kind of think it would be kind of neat to see like a recut of the doors using that technique of, of just like addled sort of, you know, channel flipping all this different like lighting, all this different multimedia. It probably wouldn't necessarily fit because it's such a, it's so rooted in like that, like sort of late sixties classic rock era. But yeah, I do think it's really natural born killers where he completely goes off menu. Well, you also have the doors doing the 
the doors are involved in this movie. Ray Manzarek. In a limited more, capacity. Like, they're protecting the legacy. And I, I think they felt even this version was way worse than I think what they were hoping. And they disowned they it pretty much it. immediately. Yeah. They it's hated sick. it. It's like, it sounds like Stone talked to every single person and just did the exact opposite. Right. So the <laughs> quick background. So we mentioned 1981. There's this huge revival. Rolling him being on the cover of Rolling Stone is amazing. I'm trying to think of what the Sports Illustrated equivalent of that would be. You know, like 1981, where they have some dead athlete on the cover. Uh, 82, Travolta is now really into it. He's studied Jim Morrison for months. Gets Brian De Palma to get involved because um, they've just done Blowout together. But then there's this other part of people also trying to make the movie. And they have William Friedkin. And so there's two different things going on and everything falls apart. Travolta calls it the biggest disappointment of his career. He said, quote, I had it down. I worked on this guy for months. Next five years, multiple people, multiple scripts, all these deals fall apart. 1988, the rights are about to expire and somebody jumps in. Guess who jumps in, Chris Ryan? Our, boy, Our guys, Mario, Mario. Kassar and Andrew Vajda. <laughs> we still don't know if they're fictional characters are real. They keep popping up in the rewatchables. They own... Carolco? How do you say it? Yeah. Carolco yeah, Carol, pictures? Carolco, yeah. So they buy it last minute, get Stone to direct, give them three to four million plus gross, uh, some gross points, and the film is on. $32 million budget, $34.4 million made, so barely broke even. <laughs> Roger Ebert, any guesses for one out of four stars for this? Uh, Two and a half. I, oh. oh, I would have guessed you would have liked it. I said, quote, that. The experience of watching the door is not always very pleasant. These are the songs, of course, <laughs> and some electrifying concert moments, but mostly there is the mournful self-pitying descent of this young man into selfish and boring stupor. Not wrong. Uh, we're going to take a break, come back to the categories. This episode is brought to you by USAA Insurance. When you're a homeowner in the military community, peace of mind is priority, and USAA Homeowners Insurance as the award-winning service to give you just that. If you have to file a claim, the process is transparent and easy. You can do it all right in the USAA app. And replacement cost coverage comes standard. That means damaged items are repaired or replaced even if they cost more today than they did when you bought them. Which could put your wallet at ease too, by the way. Tap the banner or visit usaa.com slash homeowners to learn more and get a quote. Restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you're looking for ways to save in 2024, I have a little tip for y'all. And it's very simple and easy. Just switch to Mint Mobile. For a limited time, their wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com slash rewatch. That's mintmobile.com slash rewatch. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. All right. Most rewatchable scene. So I really do like the opening in this, but I'm not going to put that in. The The first rewatchable scene to me is the, the uh, I do enjoy the film, the film school thing for all the reasons Chuck mentioned, but the first Jim and Ray scene when they're on the beach. And Amazing. Ray's like, those are great fucking lyrics, man. And then he starts <laughs> talking about the 60s. He's like, people want to fight or fuck. And he does that whole, basically tries to set up the 60s in three sentences with the bad Ray Manzarek wig on. All of it is just great. I just love it. Things are about to explode, Jim. You can feel it in the air. People want to fight or fuck, love or kill. Vietnam is right out there, man. Sides are being chosen. 
Everything's gonna flame, man. The planet is screaming for change, Morrison. We gotta make the myths. There are the great orgies, man. Like when Dionysus arrived in Greece, and made all the women mad, leaving their homes and dancing off into the mountains. Should it's a great uh, four minutes. I love Kilmer. I also like that Kilmer, yeah, as Chuck pointed out earlier, he's not singing that great yet. And then we see peak Jim Morrison. Then near the end, he figures out how to do drunk Jim Morrison, where it's almost like a different version. It's a little raspier and a little like... Uh, so he has all these different Jim Morrison parts, but I love... What beach would you think that was? You think that was Santa Monica? It's Venice, isn't it? It was Venice. Yeah. Okay. Um, next rewatchable scene. Th this is probably going to be my pick, unless you guys can talk me out of it. The first band rehearsal, <laughs> where Light My Fire <laughs> comes together in two minutes. Literally two minutes. I was to say to you, girl, we couldn't get much higher. Come on, baby, light my fire. G A D. Pretty good for me. Try to set the night on fire. That's great, Robbie. You got some nice changes in there. Any lyrics? Yeah, I got some. I call it light my fire. Fair if I'm gonna compete with your stuff, it better be about earth, snakes, or fire. So. <laughs> I like you. Sounds like the birds, though, man. But, you know, there, there is one particularly good detail about that scene. It's when he's showing the song and he's kind of playing it a rough version. And then at one point when he goes like G-A-D, where it's like it's like that, that yeah. was a F minor, I, I, A minor. I, I can remember seeing that in the theater and being like, well, they wouldn't have needed to include this. It's like it does make like it does now seem when I watched it again, it seems crazy how fast that song is put together. But it does sort of have some qualities of how maybe because it's it's always a mystery how like when a guy comes up with a song and there's four other people or three other people in the band and they sort of have to figure out from his version how to make it the full version and i i kind of appreciate that they did that then it was interesting though then they got to work on the organ intro so it's like so let's great. go outside they go outside for kick, five minutes and out. they come back yeah, in yeah. and man's eric's like nailed it <laughs> <laughs> Got it. Thanks for that two and a half minutes, guys. I figured out the organ intro. I also love when somebody writes a song and they play a version, and then the lead singer's like, let me see that, and just immediately remembers all the words and has the perfect way to spin it up. That scene hits all of my favorite things. I as I've said this before, but I always love in these music movies when they're trying to figure out basically the path to a hit song. And it all comes together in five minutes. This is not the only movie where this is a device. I enjoy it every time. Yeah, there's that. There's the the first time they play that thing you do where he speeds it up. Yeah, you know with the drums. Yeah. I think mean, that's like a very famous. Version the NWA of that. movie has that one yeah. too. They have a moment like that. They all, they all kind of do that, and they all have to condense it. Um, the first live performance of the end is just incredible and hilarious <laughs> at the whiskey yeah oh my god that that whole scene we could put some other stuff in there from the early 60s but i was just grabbing that one um i also like the it's short but the scene when he won't face the uh face the crowd and then turns around and gets into it. it's just really really good performance it's a very attractive crowd at that show oh my god <laughs> best like looking I, 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 I I went to many many rock shows. It's never like at a poison show. It's not like that. Like I've never seen a crowd look that way. But um, uh, I, I the scene that I really like uh, is 
I think that that one thing Oliver Stone does do a good job of is when he sort of simulates like their initial mania over the band and like people are rushing up to them. I had that coming up. The everything's taking off montage. One of my favorites. And and he shoots it with a camera that kind of looks like news footage from the time. And then they get on the plane and they all say who they are. And uh, they do a good job of, of that. Like, it's like, it's, it's, in some ways, it's like a device. Let's remind the audience who all these people are. So they're like, who is the drummer again? Like, let's have him say his name and yeah. what he plays. So he can um, be like percussion. He, <laughs> yes. But yes, but then he has them sort of describe themselves in ways that do, to a degree, reflect how we're supposed to assume these characters perceive themselves. So like Ray Manzarek takes himself pretty serious. Raymond Daniel Manzarek, born 21239, musician, organist. Uh, the drummer takes himself a slightly more seriously than he should. John Densmore, percussionist, 22 years old. <laughs> the guitarist seems like a normal guy. Bobby Krieger, guitar player. The girlfriend seems like I don't even have any agency in any of I'm this. I'm an ornament, fine. yeah. Occupation. Pamela uh, Morrison, ornament. And then Morrison just says, like, I'm Jim. Name, occupation? Uh, Jim. which I remember everyone in the theater laughing hilariously when he does that. Now it seems like, I mean, it's, it's just, it's so hard for me in some ways to jump back into what like my mind was like when I was, you know, 19 or whatever, I saw this movie. It's like, I, I can't remember what I knew about the doors. If I knew anything, I mean, I must've known some of their songs, but I, I think that it really was, I don't know if I read, if I read No One Gets Out Here Alive before or after this movie, I can't remember any of that. And it, it's it's hard to sort of think of what the impact would have been at the time. I love the Everything's Taking Off montage, as we've discussed in previous episodes. I also love what Chuck just mentioned. The We're resetting the movie right here with little snippets of what each person's really like. Because it's like my favorite Boogie Nights deleted scene is that one when Dirk wins the award the second time. And it's just slow motion cuts to everyone at all the different tables. And each person is like doing the perfect thing that you would know their character for. And I still don't know why he cut it, but that's that reset of them all introducing themselves. You're right. It's all you need to know about each person. It also resets who their names are, leads into the Ed Sullivan. I really like that part. Um, New Haven, 1968. It's just really good. Like, I don't remember... I have to go. Eh. I don't really remember anybody filming giant concert scenes like this before. No, so, I mean, I know there's it's not happened. even any well, footage of the I mean, Miami incident. Yeah. Uh, no, but I'm saying like in re- like an actual movie where they're like, we have four thousand extras for five days of shooting for this New Haven concert sequence. I feel like this was a new thing, right? Well, also like, a, was I the only one who really thought the guy introducing the band and talking to? The crowd at New Haven sounds exactly like Mike Francesa. <laughs> it might have been. He sounds just like him. Like, it's like, at first I was like, could this have even been, you know, it's like, um, uh, I'm trying to think of big concert scenes where you, uh, you know, I'm trying to think in the 80s if that Because I remember bad. like the well, Blues because, Brothers have a good one, but it wasn't yeah. 4,000 people. It was probably like 1,000 people. Well, I mean, you know, the idea of big crowds at rock shows doesn't really start until 1964, 63, whatever, like big crowds or whatever. So there probably wasn't there. I can't like, were there movies in the eighties about the early days of rock? There was Buddy Holly, of course, 
but that is, you know, yeah, it's all, all like, the scale they, is smaller, La Bamba, yeah. like a lot of that is like yes. televised appearances or small shows. Sure. But a lot of the stuff they would cheat because they would do the same stuff with sports movies, right? You watch the first two Rockies and they have all the extras on one side or they make they yeah. make the uh. seats in the back black or whatever. This was Stone being like, no, we're fucking doing this. We're, we're bringing 4,000 people. I'm going to have topless people standing on uh, guys' shoulders and this will be a rock concert for the entire time. We filmed this. It was really ambitious. Um, the dinner party scene is really funny when uh, Meg Ryan meets the mistress and oh, the they're, they're making scene? a duck. The Thanksgiving and scene and is amazing. They all of a sudden, a knife's out, and it's just like, hey, it's another average day with, with uh, Jim and his girlfriend. It's Patricia Keneally. Are you Patricia Keneally? You must be Pamela. You actually put your dick in this woman, Jim? Well, sometimes, yeah. Well, I understand. I really do. But just don't you ever expect that Jim's going to love you or take care of you because you're one of a hundred, you know? Hey, come on. You don't know when to stop. Look who's talking. Well, I like to think that Jim can make up his own mind about who he loves and who he doesn't. Well, don't kid yourself, sweetheart. He's crazy, but he's not that crazy. He loves me. Come on, Pam. Let's go check on those potatoes. But now, though, like I say, this damaging the way the Dorries are perceived, that scene and the scene where he locks the girlfriend in the closet yeah, and lights it on fire, well, they're both made-up events. Yeah. So it's like, I mean, the Thanksgiving scene is particularly deceptive because it seems as though this must have had to happen partially because it's Thanksgiving and they're making a duck. So when there's some weird detail like that that you're not using, like the, 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 the obvious example of what you'd make on Thanksgiving – your mind tells you, it's like, well, this must be from real events because these little strange details of bird duck taking acid before people show up and all that, you know. Um, but I guess that didn't happen at all. Yeah. And, and that's that, a stone trick, though, isn't it? Like he would do that in JFK, too, these like really detailed things that turned out wasn't real at all. And, and that, I mean, that's that is fine, I guess, but it, it does, it, you know. The idea of locking her in the closet and letting it on fire, like, I don't know where that came from, if there's even a myth about that. But if it's made up, you're basically saying, this guy who's crazy, actually, he's a murderer. <laughs> like, he's a yeah. homicide. That's a, yeah. That is a big shift, you know? Um, and it's, it, uh, uh, so when, when you watch, like, like this, the, what's good about that Thanksgiving scene is, like, I think many people have been in situations like this, where you go to, like, a small party and yeah. something is going on with and you're people. on acid and then a bunch of bikers <laughs> well, show up and your yeah. your lover is there while you're there yeah. with your girlfriend yeah well i just you know well because because what morrison does in this movie it's like there are certain guys who are like that it's like hey i'm gonna invite my ex-girlfriend or the girl i'm sleeping with on the side to this situation just because it almost kind of extends my power over both of these women um also i guess i i just read this after watching this movie this last time i guess that like the Pam character um, and like the Patricia Neely character. Neely character, yeah. Neely, yeah. I guess they were actually very cordial to each other. They had no issues with each other because it was a different mm. time where the idea of him being this way wasn't that weird. Yeah, yeah I was curious. Do you know if his sobriety is something that she advocated for at this time? Because that's another thing that's sort of like kind of passed off in the Thanksgiving scene is when they're walking up the hill. And she was like, you promised me you wouldn't drink. And he's like, well, I just took some low-grade acid. And I was like, Are, it was, were they trying to get Jim well, Morrison see, clean? Okay. 
because her family was involved with the making of this movie. Because there's some, there, Pam there was some, okay. You know, the yeah. rumors she and, that she yeah. was responsible for his death, and I think well, yeah, that she bought that she bought the heroin. The drugs, yeah. So like, was she really advocating for his sobriety? I mean, even in that scene, she says it's like you were supposed to wait to take acid because now you're going to peak early. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like she was teetotaling. She was just like, let's not burn the, the duck. Right. One thing I let's like about that thing. scene, I like the. Like Jim's friends, I know Chris would sign off right now for a prequel with just his friends, like Michael Madsen and with the Hell's Angels. Michael Madsen and Billy Idol, yeah. <laughs> and Billy Idol, like that could have been its own movie that Chris would watch. A uh, couple more rewatchable scenes. I love when Drunk Jim records Touch Me. It might be Kilmer's single best scene. What was that promise? Fucking man, you called prima donnas too drunk to fucking see. I'm gonna love you. He's just on it. He does. You're all about your fucking slaves, and then he's fine, and then he's not fine, and then he hears the light my fire commercial, and he flips out. Huh? How much? Seventy five thousand. Look, man, we couldn't reach you. We figured, you know, he's a shit. It's not a big deal, man. The song has already been commercialized. Feliciano's already sold two million copies. Fucking fuck. There's a lot. There's some other stuff to unpack that we'll get to later, but I just think he's really good in that scene. I also love the plane scene with Madsen, even though it's short when they're late for the Miami concert. And and this goes back to Chuck's point about the terrible dialogue that's secretly great, where he's like, You tested all the limits, man. What you gonna do for act three? Like, who says that? Who's <laughs> hanging out on a plane? Uh, but I love also, I really also, like Madsen. If you're hanging out with somebody at the age of 27 or 26 or whatever he was, and they ask what you're going to do in the third act of your life, <laughs> right? It's basically, say like, "Hey, I don't think you're going to live more than 10 years." You know, it's like this, we're an actor. Um, Great uh, stuff. It, it's a little odd in that scene that like Jim just turns to his producer and says, "Hey, can you get me some heroin?" <laughs> I, it's I, like it's just many, a great snapshot of like yeah. now we get annoyed if somebody has like a teacup Yorkie in the seat next to us on an airplane <laughs> oh and Jim God. Morrison is smoking a cigar and he's like, where's my heroin? So the Miami scene, I like when junk, drunk Jim starts insulting everyone, but really the key part of the scene is after when he, the Native American all of a sudden is it, the police come on the stage, is he hallucinating and he ducks the police and he sings break on through and he just glides through the crowd and they're just following him around. I think that's one of the coolest two-minute scenes, not just of this movie, but of of this era, like how they filmed that. Um, everything about it, like his performance, you don't know if it's real or not. That's like kind of when the, the movie, I think, peaks as whatever Stone was trying to achieve with his fantasy or real type thing. It's really good. So you can go on YouTube and hear the entire Miami concert. The like the there's like a 14 and a half minute video where you can hear Morrison berating the with crowd Kil- with Kilmer singing. In no, real, yeah. I mean like no, in real life, like you oh, can the hear actual it. thing. Okay, yeah, you can hear it. You can't. There's no video, but like you can you can hear Jim Morrison do that whole thing. And I know that this is weird, but the the Kilmer version is better. Like the Kilmer version wow. is equally unhinged and everything, but it is actually. 
it, it's just so captivating. I the Miami sequence is my favorite from the backstage stuff of everybody coming up and saying the exact way they feel about the doors <laughs> to him, and yeah. then him dropping to taking peyote with uh with with Krieger before they go on stage, and it's it, you'll play like an orgasm. <laughs> it, it, isn't there even that's the scene also where like it opens with for some reason a journalist is there writing a review into he's his tape recorder into and he's his like microphone. talking about like the soft parade has been a disappointing it's like it, yeah it, 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 and the so drummer is that. right yeah. and Densmore's yes. right behind yes. him like listening yeah. and then he's <laughs> just like man this ra- this rock critic completely took us apart <laughs> I mean this is why this movie's rewatchable this is why this movie if you're with four people is actually more fun to watch because there's some the, the, the line where Den, when Densmore, when Kevin Dillon says, we took drugs to expand our yeah. minds, not to escape, yeah. is not something anyone who has ever taken hard <laughs> drugs has said. <laughs> it's like, definitely for escape. Because yeah. he's acting like, you betrayed me by giving me these <laughs> Like I had no idea that we liked doing it. I thought this was like, Band practice. I'm, the, you know, it's like I've been. Uh. The funniest thing about some of those lines is like, you know, Oliver Stone wrote this with Randall Johnson. You know, they're in front of some typewriter in the early 90s. And Randall's like, what about this? We took drugs to expand our minds. That whatever he says, like, I just some of those lines fucking kill me. What do you guys think about the fact that Oliver Stone, for whatever reason, felt he needed to really amplify? the idea of Jim Morrison often being impotent in the movie. I love like it. Like he, he makes that a pretty critical part of the story. Yeah. They, yeah. They, uh, they, they said like, why do people want to have an affair with him? Was that, was he notorious for that? Like, well, I mean, like there, I, I looked it up and there are, you know, but I mean, he was all there. There are women who did say that about him, but of course, you know, he was, an insane drunk too, yeah. you know? And in fact, there's like an interview he gave once where Jim Morrison was like, the best drug is alcohol because I can't waste time when I go to a new city trying to get other drugs. Like I can just go to a liquor store and buy booze or whatever. So, you know, he's just this drinking all that. But like in the, in the one scene, he's having an impotence issue and like, she's like, here, do some coke. Do some coke and, like, and, and yeah. cut yourself. <laughs> yeah. Mellow it out. Yeah. Yeah. And then he drinks blood or whatever. Yeah. Like, it works. Ah, now I'm ready to go. Yeah. And I got like, a boner. Like that. I, I know this usually comes up later, but I feel like the whole kind of Wiccan blood marriage, that is the thing of the movie that's like, I would have yeah. cut that out. Because this is a long fucking movie, man. It's like two hours and 20 minutes. I don't, I, I, I feel like there's a lot of space in this film that could be whittled down. The Morrison impotency thing. It's like when you read about all the JFK affairs and all the women are like, yeah, he had a bad back. (laughs) Premature ejaculator. (laughs) Wasn't really that much fun to have sex with them. It's like just a report over and over again on JFK. Same thing with Morrison. I realize that in some way he's trying to be like, okay, this very sexual person that was part of the illusion of the sexuality or or it was a dichotomy or whatever. But it seems like he was too drunk to get a boner. It seems like a bigger part of the movie than I would have guessed somebody would have I would definitely on. say that if I had a, a critique of this movie or if this movie was being made now the stuff that's in the background like you know when they go on Ed Sullivan and and he and 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 they sort of break the rules there or when they when they sort of break all these decency laws that's like handled within I don't know, like a minute or two. And yet there's so much time dedicated to his like rantings and Wiccan you know 
ceremonies that he goes through but it's like charles manson is like a quick cutaway you know like there's all <laughs> yeah. this stuff that's happening in the background that seems really important but the stuff that oliver stone is interested in is like wandering around the mojave desert and communing well, there is, but th- this is why i say it's confusing to try to remember like what i knew at the time or what most people knew at the time like now it seems very odd that he kind of goes into a detailed description at one point of what shamanism is and what a shaman is and other like, but then I, then another part of me was like, was that the first time I ever heard of what a shaman was? Like it could have been like, I, I don't, I don't totally remember which of the things now that are so in kind of ingrained in that kind of like, I don't know how we just like weirdness culture or whatever, how much, how popular that was at the time. But you're right that there are like like the Ed Sullivan stuff too is like another. Uh, I I, can, I guess I understand why they kind of manipulated that scene to make it seem more dramatic. But right now that but when you know what actually happened, it's kind of dumb that they did that. You know? Well, it's definitely a little dramatized in the right. movie. I think. Well, I mean, um, okay, so the Rolling Stones had done that, and they had changed the lyrics to "Let's Spend the Night Together." As Rayman Eric thoughtfully yes, points yes, out in detail, out, yes. <laughs> um, and but when Mick Jagger did that on the Ed Sullivan show, like he rolls his eyes real melodramatically every time he sings the line, and really signals to people, it's like we're being forced to do this. The Doors, if you watch their actual performance, they just play the song. They just yeah. play the song, you know, and he doesn't change the lyric. Uh, it's not even like I. You know, I bet most of the people watching the Ed Sullivan show at the time didn't even connect the term higher with drug use. That was, just, you know, they were just like, oh, higher, some higher plane of romance. I, whole, I think the whole point of that scene, because there's that whole shot of all the other acts that are kind of getting ready for the Ed Sullivan show, Sullivan show, and it's like ventriloquist dummies, and yeah. it's all like very kitschy 1950s, really wholesome entertainment, and then these guys show up, and they're all fucked up, and they're singing about getting much higher. So I, I get why... You know, he shows it the way he shows it, but you would think that I'm surprised that Stone doesn't spend more time kind of getting into the nitty gritty of why they were so transgressive at that time and instead spends way more time kind of like wallowing in the like this sort of faux poetics of being on acid. Yeah, we, the, uh, a few years ago, Grill Marcus wrote a book about the doors. It's like a short book. It's, it's called the doors. It's like 195 pages. Um, he, uh, I, I don't know if this is true, but a, apparently a can like sometimes Grill Marcus will just, just take one month and just write a book as much as he can. And then that becomes the book. And he's in, it's about the doors, right? He loved the doors. He saw the doors like 12 times during the early part of their career. Um, the book itself is odd. He talks about like inherent vice as much as he talks about hmm. the band, but, but uh, he does a much better job of describing, like people didn't lose their mind over like the end when it was actually performed. Like, I can't believe he's talking about fucking his mom or whatever. It's like, you got to imagine who was at like the whiskey and stuff at this time. It's like, it was, there were not people who were going to be offended by things. What it had more to do, I think, just with the, uh, with the combination of the sound of the music and rock lyrics that really like, uh, prior to that, like, if you look at like, like Beatles, lyrics or stone's lyrics or whatever it's like without being specific the doors lyrics are clearly indicating that there is a different way to live Mm -hmm. that you should like live in it that that like that 
that culture is at a point where you can live differently. Um, and I think, you know, and that's not really part of this movie. But, how, but then again, how would you illustrate that? No, I mean, that's why they probably have such an on-the-nose scene on the beach where Ray Manzarek and him are just like, we have to start living differently. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, last rewatchable scene for me, we mentioned earlier when he sees the band that last time. I just, I like when the band's so together funny. and those are my favorite parts of the movie. I like when he hands I was out like, the, when the I saw that, I, was, I think the first time I was like, are they in, is he in heaven? Is this what's happening? Like what? <laughs> it's happened? just so, it's so weird. They're all saying goodbye and just Kevin Dillon, who's, I guess, trying to push forward the, the thing that this guy just didn't like Jim Morrison, but kind of did like him. And they're just trying to do 90 things with that scene. I enjoy it. My favorite, uh, rewatchable scene though, is I love the light my fire basically all the way through to the everything's taken off montage. Ed Sullivan. I think if that's on TV, I'm probably going to watch if I got nothing to do. What do you have for most rewatchable Chuck? Well, so so is most rewatchable is like the best scene. I guess I would have agreed. Well, your with you. favorite. I, I, my favorite scene is the first time they're practicing. Kind of. I think that is. Me too. You know, okay. Um, and uh, I, I think that he does the best job with that. Like I say, that mania stuff where the people come. Get, it looks very realistic, and he does a you know the the uh, sort of like the the woman comes up and kisses him, and like the girlfriend hits him with a, with a purse or whatever. Like I, I like that stuff. I uh, the the live performances. I do feel go on a bit long in this film, but uh, yeah, agree. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Chris, what do you have? The whole Miami sequence from backstage okay. to the performance. What's age the best? Uh, we mentioned a lot of stuff already. Just a couple things. The concept of selling out with commercials, which was a big part of, I don't know, my 20s and my 30s. And now it's just somebody has a hit song. It becomes a commercial right away. But it was interesting, like the genesis of that. Like, oh my God, we sold our song for a commercial. What are we doing? As this so often happens with movies about like the past, they end up telling you more about the exact time the movie was made. Mm. So like that concern over selling out in 1991 was, was huge. huge. Yeah. Now at the time, you know, like the Rolling Stones had like sold a song to like, I think it was Rice Krispies or whatever. It wasn't that odd to do have done that. Like, I wonder how much Jim Morrison was actually bothered by that because, you know, it, it, there was less of a meaning like selling out. It was like that, that's people knew what that meant, but in a different way. Um, but in 1991, of course, it's like that was the most critical aspect of any band or artist had to decide. So, like Michael Stipe would have rather yeah. killed himself than had an sure. RM song right. in a yes. commercial. He and, really would have. And the reaction of Morrison in this movie is like closer to what we expect of the reaction of like Kurt Cobain or something if this had happened. Yeah. Like, you know, that's that's kind of what he's I mean, Cobain wasn't famous yet when this movie happened, but someone like that. Uh more wits age the best. Chris, you have the floor. Give us 15 seconds on Oliver Stone's cameo as a USC film professor. The thing that really hits home is the goatee because it's it's a really thick goatee, which you know Stone either had at the time or had them manufacture for him as a fake goatee. It looks very fake to me. It's yeah. really, really fake. Yeah. <laughs> and I just love the idea that they're having this workshop where they're just everybody is just pissing on this movie from a great height and he has to get up there and be like well let's hear from the filmmaker himself like <laughs> i love it uh the top gun connection has aged the best in a fun way you have Iceman and goose's wife as the leads in a movie uh i like jim turning around during the break on through performance 
the theme of death, which I didn't pick up the first time really. And then the second time in the theater, I remember being like, oh, the bald guy, he must represent death. But Stone's really trying to hammer home like, oh, when you see that bald guy, death's coming closer. Like- and then he moves closer and closer to Jim by the time we get to the movie. It's actually kind of well done. He, he looks a lot like Jeff Bezos. <laughs> <laughs> oh, interesting. That's also what saves the best. Yeah. Um, uh, it's yeah. a good theme, though. The last yeah. one for me for what stage is the best, because we mentioned a lot already. I really like the closing credits because I, I was so mad the first time I saw this movie that didn't have L.A. Woman because that was my favorite door song. And then they they bring it in closing credits and they go around and it's like kind of the glory days of when the, but then it goes to Fat Jim, like basically sitting in a phone booth singing it. But the whole thing, it's just really good. And I like how they do all the credits. There's a pause and then it's like, and Val Kilmer is Jim Morrison. It's just well done. I like you know, closing credits always get screwed up. That was actually pretty good. Any other what's age the best for you guys? I want to go to this is a two-parter. This is the Doors music, which when I was in high school, I, I so I was I never had a Doors period. Like when the uh, when classic rock was kind of taking over in my high school, people were more into Pink Floyd and Led Zeppelin than they were the Doors. Like the Doors weren't heavy enough, I don't think. And then I kind of never really got back into them until I really got into Apocalypse Now is when I probably first started mm. listening to The Doors with any like sincerity. But the music sounds pretty good. And I would also say for as much as we've sort of lauded uh, Val Kilmer for singing, Frank Whaley looks like he's playing guitar. Like he does a lot of little gestures when he's playing that really, really make it look like it's not just like I'm an actor who learned to play guitar, but he's doing all this stuff, especially in the Miami concert and in some of the live performances where he's like, it seems like he's using tremolo a little bit or he's like kind of just eking sounds out of the fretboard. I think he's the second best person in this movie. Frank Whaley. I agree. And then I I think it looks like Kevin Dillon is drumming. I have no idea if, if Kyle McLaughlin knows how to play an organ because they never right. really show him and he's just sort of always looking and then kind of like going like he's always <laughs> playing with one hand low and one hand up yeah there must be some image he saw of Manseric doing this because every time you see him playing organ he's playing the top one and the bottom one simultaneously um for what stage the worst well there's a lot this movie's 25 minutes too long i think i think you could for me you could get rid of the reporter that could be, you know, Mimi Rogers is in this movie for a minute as the photographer who's lusting after Jim. For me, the reporter easily could have also been in this movie a minute, and I'm not sure I lose anything. I don't need the reporter to make well, me realize also Jim really was It's really confusing as to when they're together and when they're not together. And I know it was the 60s and early 70s, but it, there is a, he just kind of glides over like he's with her and then he's with Pam and then he's back with Patricia. Was um, Patricia like his East Coast girlfriend? Yeah, and they wanted to introduce that Wiccan thing, and this yeah. is how crazy Jim was, and blood, and I, and I don't know. I just, I don't know if you needed it. But then they negated all too, because at the end, when she's talking about being pregnant, and she's like, "We married each other in this blood ceremony," he was like, "I was stoned. It seemed fun." <laughs> so it was like, so it was like this whole thing, which at one point, <clears throat> while watching the movie, I assumed was, oh. This was a real central part of how he viewed, like, you know, all the Dionysian stuff. Then it's like, oh, actually, I didn't care at all. So it does seem pretty superfluous. Um, well, here's the number one what stage the worst, which I'm going to get to in one second after we take a break. This episode is brought to you by Nissan SUV. Everything's better on a bigger screen, right? I mean, I remember seeing Raiders of the Lost Ark on a big screen and feeling like my life had just changed. People felt that way about Oppenheimer recently. 
Sometimes you need to see stuff on the big screen. That's why the 2024 Nissan Rogue has Google built right into its 12.3-inch touchscreen infotainment system with Google Maps Assistant and more right there. You can really see what's up ahead, and you don't even need to connect your phone. Find your new adventure with a Nissan SUV. Learn more about the Rogue Pathfinder and Armada SUVs at NissanUSA.com. All right. This is the all-time what's age the worst. You greeny teased that. You greeny teased what's age the worst. I greeny teased it. (laughs) This podcast is basically at an hour and we haven't mentioned her yet. Meg Ryan is as Pam. um, Horribly miscast. Felt horribly miscast in the moment. I don't think she's good in the movie. There were better options at the time. And even Stone, years later, has been like basically disowned the Meg Ryan casting and like I... You know that that uh, she just wasn't good in it. She's she, for the everything we said about how Vel Kilmer, you can't separate him and Jim Morrison. He becomes Jim Morrison. I just feel like it's Meg Ryan with a wig, and who's in a different movie. Uh, basically, it's it's a little like when Jennifer Aniston was in that terrible rock star movie that Mark Wahlberg made, where it's just like, why are you in this? Did your agent talk you into this? I just think she's bad. Uh, you guys can chime in or we can move on. It's a thankless part, the way that Stone conceives of it, I think. you know, And, and I think a lot of the people who were in and around the doors at the time had a lot of critiques for the way Stone rendered that role. Whether or not that's Meg Ryan's to blame or not, I, I, you know, I don't know. But yeah, she definitely seems like she was in another movie. Okay, well, I guess I have a different view. I don't think she's that bad. Okay. And, okay. and, and you know, there's, although what I'm going to say now is going to seem like a criticism, but you know, there's the early scene where they're kind of lying together, I think on a roof yep. and, and like, he's talking about shamanism and stuff. As I was watching that, I was thinking she almost seems to be doing um, an impersonation of Nicole Kidman in this scene. And then I thought to myself how great it would have been if Nicole Kidman had been in this role. Like how much better it would have been if it would have been her. Um, but I think that, you know, there are parts like when she, when she's, you know, chagrined over the fact that he's taken acid on Thanksgiving. I feel like she's pretty funny in that. Like her, like, Oh, Jim, why, you know? Um, but yeah, it is, it's a pretty thankless role. I guess it was a central role, partially because her family did contribute to the making of this. I think she had, notes or something that that they felt that they needed um i guess it's not great it it won't be in her first paragraph wasn't it in her obituary wasn't it a big controversy too like that that she had like had never appeared topless or something in a movie and she was kind of coerced to do this by oliver stone i shouldn't say coerced maybe you know uh because it's hard to argue though how that is in some way necessary to this film there were nude scenes and sex scenes that he was pretty adamant whoever got this part had to do. And I, I think they kind of ended yeah, up Yeah, I mean, the, the stories about the casting of the, the Yeah, the we're, we're going to get parts. to that in a second. Yeah. Uh, more Woods Age the Worst. Kevin Dillon, to me, is Johnny Drama. I have, and it's, uh, it's, it's just I have really hard to watch Oliver this and not Stone's think of Kevin Di- His Kevin Dillon stock, his like hold the line position on Kevin Dillon, because he's in <laughs> Platoon, obviously, and right. he turns up here. It It is bizarre <laughs> it, and i was thinking as i watched this entourage actually should have pretended this was johnny drama's best part <laughs> when he was the drummer in the doors and it like all went downhill like why not just play into that but yeah it's just weird to see him there uh another thing that's aged terribly is the wayne world's two parody of all the doors native american stuff which if you watch wayne's world 2 
Wayne's World too is it's it's like a central theme of the entire story they're trying to sell where the shaman keep the shaman keeps coming back. And now if you watch that, like when my son, my son kind of liked Wayne's World 1. When we watch Wayne's World 2, he's like, what's going on? <laughs> Didn't understand it. So it has aged poorly. Another thing that's aged poorly, the wigs in this movie are particularly terrible. Um, everybody looks like they have a wig on except for Jim Morrison. Meg Ryan looks like she has a wig on. Kyle McLaughlin looks like they forgot that he needed a wig and they ran out and got it. I don't know what's going on with Whaley. Whaley looks like a burn victim. Well, the, who, and the hairdresser, Ed Sullivan, even makes a joke about it. It was like, I'm not even touching that hair. Yeah. Right. And Kevin Dillon, like all of them. And then Oliver Stone comes in. He looks like he's got... So I don't know. They must have spent all their money on the music budget, not the wigs. The uh, the special effects in the desert drug scene, I think have definitely are a little dated. We mentioned the witch reporter girlfriend. Um, this just is an age to worst just for life. I, this movie reminds me that the doors did not get invited to Woodstock <laughs> and what a giant miss that was. And I guess it had to do with the Miami stuff. And, but when you think like, how are the doors not in Woodstock? They were still alive and, and they might've actually stolen the show or been the worst band at Woodstock. It would have been one or the other, right, Chuck? Uh, yeah. I mean. It'd be hard to be the worst man there, but uh, they, it would have been a uh, <laughs> drunk Jim could have done it. I guess it. I never, you know, it, it's because at the point the doors are in 1969, you know, they're still hippies in a way, but yet they're kind of they're moving into sort of this kind of or like 68, 69, I guess, depending on how you look at it, like kind of moving into this darker thing that seems almost antithetical to the hippie movement. I guess I, I that yeah. did remind me. I never, I never, I mean, it's always weird. It's like Zeppelin wasn't at Woodstock. There's like all these bands that weren't there and it's, you know, Credence was there, but wouldn't be filmed. So it feels like they weren't there at all. And, the Doors as a California band, it feels like that was a miss. Another great expository scene, though, is when Morrison shows up and like all of those like office assistants, like everybody he knows is in a room and they're like, Jim, you got to change your pants. Jim, we didn't get invited to Woodstock. Jim, you got to call this guy back. <laughs> right. Um, there's some, you can go rabbit hole this on your own if you want, but there's some bad stuff with the casting process with this movie, especially that some of it came out during when the Me Too stuff started, 2017, about how Oliver Stone was cast in different people. Melora Hardin talked about it. Melissa Gilbert talked about it. An actress named Caitlin O'Heaney broke a non-disclosure agreement to talk about it, but it really sounded like uh, they were not operating correctly behind the scenes. So you can go research that on your own if you want. Casting What Ifs. They offered, Oliver Stone offered the role of Jim Morrison to the lead singer of The Cult. Ian Asbury, yeah, who turned who it then, down, who then toured with the Doors in like early two thousand, playing Doors material. So I mean, I think that that his voice is often seen as like kind of the modern, you know. Since people said about Eddie Vedder too, that they kind of sounded like Morrison. So uh, I, I had also, I don't know if this is true or not. One time they said like Bono wanted to be Jim Morrison. It, there's a bunch of people there. who were up and Michael this, Hutchins yeah. too, yeah. right? Well, that actually, that's not surprising. The Michael I, Michael Hutchins like, could have been good, yeah. Well, also, he was kind of, he seemed pretty interested in, like, I'm going to be in this band, and also I'd like to be an actor and all these things. Um, I, it it would have been strange for Bono to do this, but uh, at that time. I, don't, I just can't imagine he would have done it. Michael Madsen auditioned for Jim Morrison, and then they um, moved him to the Tom Baker role, which initially was to, Billy Idol. He had to lose 40 pounds. Initially, it was Billy Idol. 
Billy Idol had this motorcycle accident that has now come up in two rewatchables because he was initially the choice for the T-1000 in Terminator 2. Like had the, the motorcycle the Billy accident. Billy Idol, do what it. if? Like the Billy Idol, if he doesn't have that motorcycle accident, he, have, he like, might two be like, Oscars Hugh Jackson. Right <laughs> so, I don't get it. He would have uh, played Abraham Lincoln instead of Daniel Day-Lewis if he hadn't had that motorcycle accident. He's, he Right now, he would be like doing some HBO prestige series. The casting director said that Patricia Arquette auditioned really well for the role of Pam and should have gotten the role. That's a fun one to think about because, so she gets true romance two years later, but um, I think that actually would have been a better idea to go with somebody we didn't know as the, as that we didn't have a history with. And I think she would have done a good job. And then I just found this out in the research. Did you know Kyle MacLachlan was Oliver Stone's first choice for the Charlie Sheen role in Platoon? No. Yeah. He could have been good in that. So he always he always was a Kyle McLaughlin guy. Uh, next category, best that guy, aka the Joey Pants Award. So Frank Whaley's not a that guy. I feel like Pulp Fiction made him Frank Whaley. I think people know him as Frank Whaley, right? Yeah, I th- I, I think so. Okay. So the two nominees would be the manager, whose name was Josh Evans, and then the producer, who who I don't even know his name was. It's Michael Paul Wincott. Ruck. I and think he's, he's the winner. Yeah, he's, yeah. Well, he he was more familiar to me, even though I don't yeah, know who he is. I don't know who he is, but I know I've seen him and stuff. So he wins the Vincent Hanna "Give Me All You Got" award. He's big because uh, so a lot of people know him from The Crow. Is is my oh good Cuts one? Yeah, you're one. right. Yeah, um, Vincent Hanna "Give Me All You Got" award for best overacting. We're we're Val Kilmer. I think was, separate. It's completely yeah, separate. He, he's oh, also, can I just build? There was one more t- uh, that guy, which he's yeah. not a that guy, but at the time he was. Is Titus Welliver plays the cop? Who catches? Oh, great call! Uh, yeah, Kathleen Quinlan and Val Kilmer in the shower together. Good one. Um, give me all you got to work. Come, for me, it comes down to Crispin Glover just going for it in this <laughs> one Andy Warhol scene. And then I gotta say, everything Kevin Dillon does makes me feel like Johnny Drama is playing the, the drummer, and he's dialed it up in each scene. But I think Crispin Glover has to win. Well, I don't know what he's doing in that scene. No, the thing is, it would be an okay depiction of Warhol if not for all that weird stuff yeah like really the way bizarre. he's talking and like to, like when he plays with the phone and he kind of is not really listening to people who are talking to him and he just kind of pedantically lectures he's really good at that but then he adds this kind of weird sexual aspect where like the whole time he's talking to jim morrison speaking he's, like, he's gonna like blow him yeah and that and that and like it's all because of his tongue if they, if they just told him not to do that because there was like around this period of time there were you know like david bowie plays uh andy warhol in that movie i shot andy warhol Mm -hmm. is that yeah yeah. and there's there were a few other situations where people depicted warhol in on screen and i think that his is pretty good except for this one detail which makes the whole thing weird chuck just speaking of the factory stuff was that an accurate that was not an accurate depiction of nico was it I, it, I mean, I don't think so. I mean, <laughs> she's also kind of an, like a, a confusing person, but like it's. Uh, I just way- think of her. I think of her wearing a turtleneck. Like I don't. Even, I, that was just really strange that she's just like, let's fuck. Yeah. Also, it kind of makes her seem like somebody who is like, I, I my craving for for fame is like like a star fucker or whatever. Like yeah. Uh, like and, and, and also Lou Reed is nowhere to be seen in yeah. this. Yeah. So I'm not sure why he isn't included in this circle. If you're just, you know, but he, they don't even have him show up. Maybe 
maybe there, I don't, but here again, I don't know if that was factual or, I mean, we, you were talking about things that like, uh, that haven't aged well. I think one of the things that I think hasn't aged well is the fact that if you make a movie like this, now it's very easy to fact check these little details about it where it, in 1991, you couldn't. So Good it's point. like, you know, uh, it, it, if, if you're, uh, if you're trying to do a movie about a real person, I think you have to be much more careful now. Or, or, yeah. Well, because it's like, it, it would have been bad for Oliver Stone. Right. For a variety of his been, movies. People would have talked about it, but they would have, they would have, instead of talking about like, you know, that Roger Ebert review, you mentioned how he's like, Oh, it's kind of sad seeing this self-destructive person. I think somebody would have been like, well, it's kind of unfortunate that they've depicted him in this way with all these scenes that as far as we can tell, never happened. You know, maybe that's why movies are less fun now. Dion waiters work for heat check. Runners up include Mimi Rogers, one of my all time favorites as the horny photographer. I wish she had had more scenes. Crispin Glover, we mentioned whatever Billy Idol is doing in this movie, I enjoy it. But for me, the clear winner is Michael Madsen, who if this is a great six year run of Michael Madsen makes everything better. Whatever it's in, I'm, I'm just enjoying. I'm still bummed out he wasn't in heat. I don't know how they couldn't have stuck him in there. But, uh, I don't really know what the point of him is in this. He's like Jim's friend who I guess I think he's makes supposed to be movies. the devil on his shoulder character because he's constantly getting But he's hot. basically Michael Madsen. He's not yeah. playing a character. He's just, they're like, hey, show up and could be Michael Madsen for five scenes. I enjoy every minute of Michael Madsen in this movie. Um, I also, I like Bill Siddons, who's the the first manager who approaches them and he goes up to Jimmy's and like, drop these guys. I'll make a million dollars. Right. Uh, recasting couch. So, Obviously, I have to recast the Meg Ryan part. Thought of this one. What about Robin Wright mm -hmm. as Pam? Because she, she'd basically be playing Jenny Gump, right? The Jenny Gump, 1970s Jenny Gump, just in this movie. And I think it would have worked. And I think she is a better actress, frankly. Oh, what about, uh, I mean, this might be too on the nose. And I, I'm not going to pronounce her name because I'll get it wrong. But... Uh, the teenage daughter from the Wonder Years. Oh, Olivia Diabo from Kicking yeah. and Screaming. Oh, yeah. yeah, she could have been yeah. good too. Yeah, she would have been. She would have been the right, All right age. Chuck. Good one. Um, uh, and, all, and it would have been, you know, you would have been very easy to buy her as that kind of person because you know it would have seemed as though that was the most thing she was famous for at the time. What do you guys? <laughs> they think should have gone young and aged her up versus oh, so older. You, and what about Sharon Stone? Too, oh wow! Nah, oh my hard. God, that would have been. I, I think she would have competed with Morrison too much. <laughs> I don't know if she could have. Yeah. I don't know if she could have stepped back. She could have played the Kathleen Quinlan part for sure. We'll go over half-assed internet research really quick. Um, there's a lot of stuff online that about just the doors opposing this and the whole thing that you can find, but um, it was a classic thing where kind of what happened with the queen movie where if the doors, if they were in it, they wanted to make sure they were in the movie. So you can read up all that. Same thing with the Corson, the Pam's family about, um, they basically wanted her to be portrayed as an angel. There's a whole bunch of stuff about that. There's some stuff about Val Kilmer, which definitely happened where there was this memo and it was unclear who the memo was for, but it was basically like, don't make eye contact with Val Kilmer during the filming, stay away from him. And it was unclear who the memo was for, but it definitely existed. When I did that profile or a profile on Val Kilmer in like 2000 and 
five or six, I think it was, I interviewed Oliver Stone. And at the time, he said that he assumed that the biggest issue that Val Kilmer had during this movie is he was very tired of wearing the same pair of pants every day. <laughs> and he said that he, that Val Kilmer progressively grew annoyed by the fact that he had to wear these same black leather pants. Right. And that, cause he was like, when we made Alexander, he was great, you know, different pants. You know what I'm saying? Poor Val. Uh, <laughs> there's, we mentioned some of the uh, discrepancies with the violence, um, the closet, Thanksgiving, um, more, Morrison getting mad about light my fire there. Everybody agrees stone made either made some stuff up or took a lot of liberties. You can go read about that if you want. Um, after it came out, they all criticized the movie, the doors that they made him seem like an out of control psychopath. Manzarek just was like, this is Manzarek's quote, 1991 Jim with a bottle all the time. It was ridiculous. It was not about Jim Morrison. It was about Jimbo Morrison, the drunk God, where was the sensitive poet and the funny guy? The guy I knew was not on the screen. Um, and then the the character, this is even more frustrating with the uh, reporter character. It was a composite character. Mm -hmm. So they spent all this time on this side story with the uh, Patricia, the reporter. He had the, and it was like not even a real person. So if you're looking for places to cut, do that. They filmed, uh, they filmed the desert stuff in the Mojave Desert at the East Mojave Preserve and uh, got in trouble and had to pay a fine. And then uh, Billy Idol's role was much bigger, as we mentioned earlier, but he had had that motorcycle accident. So anytime you see him, he's um, he's sitting, sitting down, down or, crutches, or he's being yeah. framed a certain way. Then the last thing, Chris, this is just something I found out. Um, the bar that Jim Morrison and his buddies frequent in this film, do you know what bar it is? It's in West Hollywood. No, what it's is it? It's a bar you've been to. What is it? Barney's Beanery. <laughs> is it? They actually shot in Barney's Beanery? Yeah, apparently. Is that the bar he pisses in? Yeah, that that was it's that it's became like a sports bar eventually. Uh so anyway, bar, big day for Barney's Beanery. Apex Mountain. Wait, there's one more I just want to throw one more internet research thing because I read this last yeah. night. Did you guys come across this that in Jim Morrison's apartment when he died, there was a copy of an early Oliver Stone script called Break, which was the an early version of Platoon? Really? That's what I read Wait, last night and on like a how could how could that be? That seems I, that seems half-assed. It is half-assed. I only saw it on one site. It was 71, right? Mm. When he died. Yeah. yeah so it's not inconceivable, but it seems I, in France, his apartment in France. Yeah. He has a copy of Oliver of an early Oliver Stone script. Yes. This was on the of of an article about the um, re-release of the DVD and like its restoration. So I have not mm. seen this anywhere else, but I like the idea of it. All right, let's go to Apex Mountain. Oliver Stone. No, no. Oh, this is Kilmer's Apex Mountain. I personally think it it's Kilmer's be? Apex Mountain. Kilmer's. Unless you could make a case for he was in a Batman movie, but I I think oh this is no, it for who Kilmer. gives a shit? He was. That was like, this is by far his, like, I mean, I guess there are like tombstone people out there who would say that, that in that smaller role, he's actually better in like, like the whole Huckleberry thing. Yeah, I hear people quoted that. No, this is a giant movie star um, role. Yeah. This made him in, just, yeah. this made him an A-lister and this changed his career and put him in the conversation with a bunch of the most important actors. So I agree. Meg Ryan, no. Desert drug scenes, Chuck. Apex Mountain? Did we do better uh, in the desert with people doing drugs? Has it ever been topped? 
I suppose this this movie really galvanized the idea that if you're going to take hallucinogenics, you should go to a desert. Why do we think that? that? Why not go to like a hotel resort pool? Well, you want to be in nature, but you don't, I don't know if you necessarily, like a forest is just as good. Although, But it's like the the, the desert is where you do these things now. I mean, that's just like, if you were making a mock, like a a mock satire of like rock movies, you would always have them go to a desert. Um, And uh, like the Mojave Desert, I know that's the coldest desert in the world. Where is, what's the actual location of the Mojave Desert? It's like it the high desert, in Eastern California, right? Yeah, it, it, I, it did. Like I've never really spent time in the desert, but it's like it didn't look like any place I'd ever seen before. It was like there's a uh, like an aerial shot. It doesn't it's look like Joshua awesome Tree or something like that. Looking, no. It's an yeah. awesome looking desert. Like it looks like the Sahara. That's why they weren't you know, allowed to film there. Yeah. Uh, Frank Whaley might say Pulp Fiction for him. Yeah, I'd probably put. put 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 it at Pulp Fiction. I really that, like Frank or, Whaley. Or career I, opportunities would be Frank Whaley. Yeah, Apex. I, I still have Frank Whaley stuck. Is that like you're saying when he was? How does this work? When he had in, in when he had the most juice in his career. <laughs> most juice. Okay. I love that Chuck always wants to have well, a definition. It, I, it really does make no sense to me because I can't tell if you're saying that was the height of his career or if it was the position when the height was possible to reach like i never get it it was the both a height in his career that led to he never had more opportunities coming out of this movie right but wouldn't have this, this movie this movie would have given him the opportunity to be in pulp fiction right well but the Fair. problem with this movie is that it wasn't a success yeah that's so that's why it, I can't what, give it didn't it really him. set him up for anything he put him on the radar but i feel like after pulp fiction it was like he was so good in that in a short dose in that Unlike Bruce Willis's girlfriend, who almost ruined the movie for twenty minutes, which <laughs> fantasy was here? Jesus. Um, Kyle McLaughlin. No, I'm going to say no. Twin Peaks. Yeah, yeah, it has to be. Michael Madsen. No. Billy Idol's movie career, I think, definitely peaked in 1991. <laughs> He's got James Cameron and Oliver Stone like dying to work with him. <laughs> uh, Barney's Beanery, no question. And then uh, the Do- Doors music. I, you could argue in '91 this was the most pot. You this think was the, the doors were bigger in '91 the than they were in '69? Well, because there were more people that had the ability to listen to music in '91, and I'm telling you, there was a one-year stretch there where this the doors were a thing again. Well, yeah, I mean that there was there were three doors periods. There was the period when they were new, and all those first three records all charred really high. There was again in 1980, and then there was just the period following this movie. Um, what is interesting though, is that, you know, it kind of gets like boiled down every time. Like, Oh, uh, like a song like peace frog or something, which I think a lot of doors people look at is like one of like their favorite songs. It's not a greatest hit. So you're not going to hear it. Um, it did definitely reintroduce doors music back into the culture at large. There's no question about that, but I don't know. It's, you know, like one of these things that aged worse, you know, I don't know if this is even a, like a viable answer, but one of the things that I think has aged worse is the potential audience for this movie. Whereas mm. the, the audience for this movie, when it came out, like it's not as though Jim Morrison's behavior in this movie is lionized. I mean, people are consistently throughout yeah. this film. Scandalized being like, by you're, it. You're ruining our lives, you know? Um, uh, but I think now if someone sees this movie, there's this weird obligation to sort of like 
this movie needs to more specifically declare that Jim Morrison is a bad person. And that, the, you know, whereas in, in the early 90s, it was like, well, he's a bad person. Sometimes people like this are. Like mm-hmm. sometimes artists are good people and, and, and bad people at the same time. But isn't that sometimes a philosophical have, question with art right now where well, it, it the is, whole point of is. art is like you're supposed to decide for yourself what you think of this person. But like you don't, using JFK as the example or whatever, that's not, you don't have to, if somebody watches JFK now, they're not sort of forced to to make this decision where if I like the Garrison char- character or I don't, that it somehow reflects something about like my worldview. Now I feel like if someone were to watch the doors for the first time, like, you know, they would feel like, well, I need to make sure it's clear that like, uh, I think that this, I don't endorse Jim's antics. Yeah. 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 Like this is toxic behavior, even though people thought that at the time, I mean, it wasn't as though people watched this movie in 1991. It was like, he's totally cool. Everything about this is cool. It was more like, well, that's kind of how things are. That's like, that was the culture of rock at the time or whatever. So I, I, I do think that to a new person, like if if there's a like a 19 year old now who would see this movie, their feelings about it uh, would they would be forced to feel certain things that like I wasn't forced to feel. Right. Like I was not. There was no obligation for me in 1991 walking out of that theater to be like, well, you know, that was entertaining, but like that's a, this is problematic. <laughs> but like let's talk about Jim's no, problematic that, behavior. Yeah, that was, like, yeah. it was just not, that was not a, a conversation. I agree. You know, it, and it, but at the same time, it wasn't assumed not to be problematic. It was assumed at the time that the person in this movie is a sociopath, essentially in a lot of ways, uh, more so in the movie that he probably was in life, but it was like, well, you can just, that's just how movies are. Like movies do that, you know? Well, that's you, why that, movies are less interesting yeah. though. Cause we, cause I, we didn't have a problem building a movie. I don't know. I mean, you, you you have to go, you have to do things differently. Like you would, especially in a movie with this much exposition, like you would, <laughs> you would need more characters. You would need more like, characters to be like, Jim, this Jim. is super weird that you're doing yes. this. Jim, it's like, Jim, I'm triggered by your behavior. Yeah. Oh, another thing that was funny about this movie is, so I, so I watched, uh, I, I, I watched this movie uh, at night, but earlier that day I had gone to the dentist and at my dentist, you can lean back and they they show Netflix on. Yeah, TV they do that at my dentist they, too. But yeah, but it's not really Netflix. It's like some you have very limited options. So I ended up watching The Office and these old episodes of The Office. And it's funny because often in The Office somebody says Jim and Pam. So then I watched the Doors movie that night, and then at one point after he kind of stalks her and follows her home, he's like, you know, she's like, oh, my old man's in there, you know, getting us drinks or whatever, and he's like what's your name or whatever? And she says, Pam. And it's like Jim and Pam. And I was like, it would have been funny if the office would have adopted the relationship the doors. of that's Jim right. and Pam from the if doors. Jim, if Jim you know? was just yeah. doing peyote and making calls yeah. for paper yes. mill. Yeah. And, that and should like, have at least you know, been a special the other, episode. The other thing that's really funny about this, and it's just uh, that it's just, Oliver Stone is so like, I don't know. I, I, you know, I, I think he did a wrote a great script for Conan the Barbarian. Like I'm not against Oliver Stone, but so Jim Morrison writes and sang and talked, and a lot of his poetry was about death, okay? But he's somebody in his 20s. When you're in your 20s, very often, you're into the idea of death because you have a consciousness of what it means, but it's so far off, it doesn't seem possible. This movie works from the premise that artists interested in death 
want to die. <laughs> that's not how it is. It's like in your twenties, that's like, Oh, it's like, I'm interested in, in these, you know, these, these like these big questions or whatever, you know, what does it mean to be alive? What does it mean to die? It doesn't mean, you know, I, I wrote a book, killing yourself to live. I didn't actually want to kill myself. It's like, that's just what you do when you're that age and your mind is sort of maturing to the point where you can understand something that no one understands. Um, and that's right around the yeah. time when I, when I became obsessed with the fact that I might live my whole life and die without seeing a Red Sox world series. So I totally identify. But like they, he really wants to hammer home this idea that like anytime Jim Morrison gets in a scenario that's complicated or uncomfortable. He just challenges someone to kill him. Yeah. Right. Or, or, or climbs or out on a ledge. Balcony. Yeah. Right. We got to take a break and then we're going to uh, come back and finish the categories. This episode is brought to you by Royal Caribbean. It's so hard to choose what kind of vacation you want. Beach, island hopping, hiking, culture. What about choosing Royal Caribbean and going on all the vacations at once, you could test out your surfing skills. You can go on multiple onboard pools. I mean, think about it. If you go island hopping to a jaw-dropping range of Caribbean destinations, including the Bahamas, Bermuda, Jamaica, Mexico, many more, you could hike a Jamaican jungle. You can climb an Alaskan glacier. You can sail to Europe. You could snorkel along colorful reefs, jump off a waterfall, go, go jet skiing. You can do it all. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Visit Royal Caribbean. Dot com to learn more. All right, we're coming back. Picking nits. We, so we all agree we don't need the uh, reporter girlfriend for nearly as long as we ever in the movie. That's an obvious nit, nit, uh, nitpick. The the dinner party, which didn't happen and seems like a pivotal scene, it um, seems like a nitpick. Like if you're going to have a scene like that <laughs> with lots of witnesses, it probably should have happened. Do we need... I'll give you three choices. Do we need all any of the Native American stuff? Do we just need some of the Native American stuff? Or do we need what we ended so up with? So let me p- pitch a different version of this to you guys. Okay. Instead of the opening 25 minutes of this movie being uh, like the dream sequence on the road with his parents, which I know plays into the end. Uh, and then Which was also made up. This sort of like wandering kind of opening wouldn't you much rather have like a very basic like this is what Jim Morrison's like actual early life was like? Well, that would have been interesting. Although the reason there was so much intense desire to make this movie is exactly for this Native American stuff, though. Really, the okay. idea that well, that, well, yeah, because it's like the idea that somehow the Doors and Morrison kind of transcend the world of what, what we of rock or and whatever. And he just emerges kind of out of the desert. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, and, 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 and the Sugarman book, the Danny Sugarman book is a big part of that. Um, he all, like Danny Sugarman also wrote a terrible Guns N' Roses book in 1991. I shouldn't really say this, the guy's dead. I, but it's the same thing. Like the book is awful. And it's awful because he's still fixated on like Dionysus. And sort of like the relationship of these musicians. What's H the worst? Like, Dionysus? Yeah. yeah, well, because it's like, that was like, it was this obsessive idea that like the doors were important, not just because they made these songs, but because they're almost like tapping in to this kind of deep history of like, you know, like the, I think this even comes up at one point where it's like when they're in the Warhol scene, I hope I'm not getting this wrong, where like a guy is saying like, well, you know, Andy believes that like pop stars are now the gods or whatever. It's like, like that, you know, that's really part of it. So the idea of just making a movie about the doors because the doors are interesting, I don't think that could have happened. 
Like you can do that now with Queen. I don't know if in 1991 or 1990, there, there was there was a reason all these guys wanted to make this movie. And it was because right. they wanted it to be more than just that. So the movie you're describing, I might be better, but I don't think it would have happened. Hmm. Like I don't think it could have happened at that time. Another nitpick. Ray just basically disappears in the second half of this movie. I feel like he's an important character in the first part. And just in the last hour, he's just kind of looking on sadly. And it really needs a scene where they're just like, Jim's life is falling apart. And they're, I don't know, at some coffee house or they're on a beach or it's just the two of them in a studio. And for Ray to express concern or anything, it's just not in there. They just kind of abandoned the character completely. My thing on this, word, that this is just like, this, these are small details that bother you. Of all the things in this movie that are explicitly discussed in the most straightforward terms, why is there no discussion about not having a bass player in the band? <laughs> <laughs> like, why, why is there not a scene where they're like, we could use an organ? For, it's, like, it's like, that to me is one of the most important things about The Doors, is that they're like, this is like a, a different... The reason that music actually, I think one of the, one of the reasons it holds up pretty well is because it does sound different than rock music. Yeah, it music breaks up the hegemony. Yeah. It, it, you know, and, and like, you know, and, and it was a good scene early when they're at Venice Beach. Um, it made me realize like when you hear like the big, the, the organ part on Break On Through, that's kind of like surf music. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's kind of like an organ version of Dick Dale or something. So, I mean, I would I would have loved the scene where they discuss why they're not they don't have a bass player in the band. But you know, uh, I that, that's that's the so that's my biggest nitpick. Is oh, here's the here's the other thing. Maybe and you might know this, Bill. Uh, at, when he is recording. Uh, his book of poetry. He's wearing a jersey of number 66. <laughs> it looks a little bit like an early Cleveland Browns jersey. Do you have any idea what who that's supposed to be or why he's wearing that? Like, like if it was 99, that's out of Graham. I don't know who 66 is. I was like, Lyle Zeta wasn't in the league yet. I was you like, think it's what? like Marion Motley? Do you, I wonder if it's like it, was he was there was I don't he know Marion Motley's number. I, I that's like I feel embarrassed not to. I have no idea what Marion Motley's number. I don't number know. Was. I, don't, I don't know who it was. I just somebody assumed it was that. a made up jersey. Somebody check that. Check Marion Motley's number. Did Jim Morrison like was he like a Bruins alumnus? Like did he support the the UCLA athletic a Yeah, like I'm curious whether or not was he was he a real big wooden guy like <laughs> he helped kill, he helped keep Bill Walton there for uh the second year. Um my biggest nitpick, because there's there's a lot of deleted scenes on YouTube. There's somebody has a whole playlist and there's like 12 things. There's one scene, I think it's the second scene of this guy's whole playlist where it's basically just another performance scene, a little like that whiskey a go-go scene early on when he won't turn around, and then he turns around, where they're just kind of working stuff out on stage. And it made me realize like I could have taken 10 more minutes of another performance on uh, Hollywood on sunset in 1966 or like what Chuck talked about, just an argument about whether they should have the bass player, all the stuff about the formation of the band, the band crystallizing into what it became leading to that. Everything's taking I would have even liked to have a I little rather bit more about the first record where he's like six, we made an album in six days. And it's like, right. How'd they you, name it? Like, yeah, right. there's just all early band stuff. I would have much rather had that than, everything that happens in the last hour or it's just like 15 minutes too fat. So um, what do you guys think of the bad. last, like the last, I guess it'd be either 12 or 19 minutes of the movie. Like the whole, like it, it almost seems like, I think it's like there's 20 more minutes in the movie after Miami. Yeah. 
Um, yeah. I, uh, Cause there's well, the court, you get the birthday the party, scene. that yeah. whole thing. That, you get yeah. The birthday, yeah. Um, it could, it definitely could have gone a little faster. Also, it's always great that when he dies in the bathtub and his girlfriend finds him, she does the thing that all people do in all movies or television shows upon finding a dead person. You immediately accuse them of joking. Like, quit joking around. Get, like, like, <laughs> yeah, there's like, no panic. So like, like, if I, like, I, 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 I can't imagine that if I found a dead person, my first thing would be like, I'm going to try to, you know, I assume this person is playing the always hilarious joke of pretending to be dead in a bathtub at two in the morning because... <laughs> Chris, what'd you think of the uh, artistic choice to have skinny, most handsome Jim Morrison dead in the bathtub <laughs> instead of fat, bloated, bearded Jim Morrison? It was up there with the two Jim Morrisons who were following that person down the hallway to go meet Andy Warhol. I like right. that too. Yeah. Uh, could this be remade as a 10 episode Netflix show? Please no. No, but Probably I would do an, a late uh, a, a 1960s Sunset Boulevard show. Yeah, that would be good. I bet that's been discussed. Yeah. You need a lot of good actors for that. Probably unanswerable questions. I guess uh, I only have one. Chris, would you have watched a prequel about Jim's entire stint at USC film school? Yes. The, the, the whole the whole thing. Absolutely. Every class? Him being like, you know what I'm going to do is get Triumph of the Will, but then I'm also going to be walking around on a rooftop reading poetry. <laughs> what a great movie idea. Another unanswerable question that I have is, did they always have such incredibly telling books lying around? Like, cause this oh, movie, yes. <laughs> like when they're showing the Buick commercial and Norman Mailer's armies of the night is propped up right next to the TV. I'm like, did that really, did you guys really have such like a representative text? Yeah. Early in the movie, they show all the books he's been reading. The Rambo you know? poetry. And, yeah. Um, and it is very interesting in the sense that apparently one of the things Jim Morrison wasn't into was stacking books on top of each other. No, but he needs to <laughs> lie them spread, all out so that every them out. title is visible. And like he's like, oh, also, and it's like Oliver Stone's like, I bet he would want a mark like a, like a McLuhan book in here too. Yeah, yeah it's like, it's like or, or like they found some interview where Jim Morrison talked about the books that he liked. They sent someone to like the Barnes and Noble of the time. It's Bill's being quiet. Up. Cause he's got a Larry bird book in the background there. So he's actually <laughs> subscribes to the Oliver See, Stone set dressing the, idea. In the biopic of you, that would be good. like, you'd be you lying in the bed. And there'd be like drive would be there. Breaks yeah, of the Elver, game. The yeah. Elverstam book would be there. Oral history center yeah. live. Yeah. Yeah. So it would still be lying there. Bill would also have a, a book about metals. Yeah. <laughs> 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 That's a good, I should have that in the background. Uh, Chris, was this the best, best use of an Arthur Rimbaud book, or would you say Eddie and the Cruisers? Uh, Eddie and the Cruisers, definitely. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So I want to clear that Arthur up. I don't Rimbaud, have any more unanswerable questions. No, me neither. Was Michael, other than was Michael Madsen's character, like, was he a Roger Corman type of male actor, or was he just doing straight? No, he was an actual hang, hangers-on. I, I think he was like the Andy Warhol, Paul Morrissey kind of like art, art born, okay. right? Uh, for who won the movie, uh, one of the most obvious ever, the Kilmer wins this convincingly and, and it's like the unanimous MVP vote in an NBA season. I think yeah. this is no question. He wins the movie. It's a really, I gotta say, enjoyable rewatch. I hadn't watched it from start to finish in a while. And, uh, I really enjoyed it. My wife kind of came in and watched, I think two thirds of it with me and was supposed to go somewhere and stayed and, uh, it's I think on Cinemax and it's on, Cinemax, on Amazon yeah. as well. So if people want to watch it, it's I the Kilmer performance is the legacy of this movie. So uh, Chuck Klosterman, I have one last question for you before we go. Ask me. So when I was in college, <laughs> and then 
even a little bit in high school, the okay. Doors were like the most polarizing rock band from that era. They were the one that the the snooty music people kind of looked down on. I felt like, and that was part of the legacy. It was like, ah, that the the Doors they never should have been that popular. They were kind of the proxy for like what the, would happen. The with, Troy from Reality Bites characters. Yeah, down it, yeah, yeah. Troy from Reality Bites hated the Doors, and it was kind of they became like a proxy for what we would get with the internet where if something became a little too popular or whatever, we had to just trash it. Were the doors like that in the eighties out of all the rock bands, or do you think it was a different rock band? You know, my, like I said, my memory of the doors in the eighties is pretty scant. I mean, it's like, I, I knew their biggest songs and, and they were part of kind of the original class of the canonical rock bands or like the Beatles stones, Zeppelin, the Kinks, the Who, and the Doors were always in that group. And I feel like um, the Doors was the least respected one out of all of those. Yeah, the, not the by me personally, kind of, but just in general. Yeah, I think I, that, know, that so I, I think I, I have, I, I, I think that just that certain bands that people have like kind of a uh, a lot of people have like kind of the same trajectory with the band, which is that the Doors are a group that you get into at one point when you're sort of a younger person. And, uh, or you're, even if you're not that young, your mind is younger in terms of your experience with rock music. And it seems really kind of good and interesting. And then it kind of keeps getting worse and worse and worse that your idea of the band keeps going down and down and down. And then you just sort of forget about it and come back to the music. And it seems pretty good again. Like, I mean, I definitely like the doors now more than I would have in 1999 when i think i would have considered like if that was dur like during the late 90s early 2000s my thing was like the two most overrated rock musicians of all time are jim morrison eric clapton i don't like either of them and i i, I just i didn't like them for all these secondary reasons some of which i know were created by this film um yeah but when i like like five to one is a good fucking song it's a Scary song, kind of, in a lot, you know. And got it really revived these, by Jay-Z when he did Takeover. He sampled it. Well, and it has, like, you know, it's it's a little bit like Don't Fear the Reaper mm -hmm. in the sense that, like, you don't know what the meaning of this song actually is. Like, is this about Vietnam? Is it that, like, the idea that, that like, one in five Americans going to Vietnam are going to be killed or whatever, or we're killing off one out of every five young people in Vietnam or all these things. Um, and, it, it, and then it kind of then transfers to this idea of a song about basically, like, like wide scale revolution that we have, we outnumber the cops five to one and they have the guns, but we, we have the numbers and all that stuff. I mean, that, I think that's a pretty great song. And I, uh, you know, I, uh, I, 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 to your answer, your question, like was, were the doors uncool in the eighties? I don't think they were uncool. I think they were polarizing. Well, probably. I mean, I bet they were, but I mean, like I'm a bad judge for that because it's like, I was listening to faster pussycat. So I was like, right. I, I, I had no, the idea of, of do we like, I've said this many times, but like in the 1980s, bands like Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath and groups from that period, they seemed so old to me, much older than they seem now. This kind of goes back. Like I said this thing, on, you can look for it on YouTube. It's just called like the slow cancellation of the future. It's a guy sitting at a table yeah. giving like a 40 minute speech. And it's very interesting, but it really has changed. So I, I, like I, uh, the doors probably seemed older in 1985 than uh, they may now in a way. I don't know. It's like hard to describe, but that definitely has happened. I think the Spotify 
the Spotify playlist era has really helped the Doors because they have some songs that, it, these songs are 50 years old now. I think that's the other thing that's crazy. Yeah. They're 50, 51, 52 years old. But when you talk about the sense that like snooty music people look down on them, so in your memory, who are the bands those people yeah. appreciate? Right. Like, so so if, if you, you know, who do you remember that the people who criticized the Doors, who do you remember them liking or saying was good? Beatles, Rolling Stones, I feel like carried a lot of weight. The Eagles, it's weird. The Eagles, I think people were really down on in the late 70s, but then when they released the two greatest hits albums, there were so many good songs on the albums that you kind of were like, man, those guys had a lot of a lot of good ones. But in the classic rock era, I feel, you know, what what year did the classic rock format take off? That was like 83, 84 range? Or maybe well, actually, earlier, 82? No. Much, much later, actually. Because in 1982... Music like The Doors and Zeppelin, all that stuff, that was just considered album rock. Mm -hmm. Okay, that was just, but it was definitely it was mid 80s. Idea of, I mean, as I think because that, like, that was a K rock and and uh, the I'm blanking on the one in New York, but um, that was when those the big kind of formats plus that's when CDs kind of started coming out 83, 84, and you're building a CD collection. There's really only been 15 years of good music. So you would do, you'd buy the Eagles one, you'd buy the Steve Miller band, greatest hits, you'd buy the doors. There were like 20 CDs that everybody had. Right. And I feel like that's when the doors, like that 81 to 85 range, they got kind of revived. And then there was a backlash. It's like, no, no, that, you know, no, they weren't as good as this, this and that. So I don't know, maybe it was just something I felt with all the friends I had and stuff like that. But I never felt like they were as respected. So hmm. I don't know, just a theory. Well, there's there's not a culture around the doors the way there is around the dead. Like I remember in my yeah. in my high school yearbook, it was there was a few years there where people would have Jim Morrison quotes, like the seniors would, but you like there was nothing to do if you liked the doors. Like if you liked yeah. the dead, there was like a whole subculture to participate in, and you could go see right. other bands like them and go see them even back then. But if you like the doors, there's like four albums and that's it. Well, and people who like the Doors very often are much, that was kind of a signal that was like, I also like poetry. Yes. Like, I like, yeah, like that, that I, uh, I like the idea of, oh, he's just not some rock star. He's actually this other person who has these sort of deep thoughts about like these kind of existential problems. So I guess there was some of that, like it's, there, there there's definitely something that's already about the Doors um, that we don't really sense now when we've seen like, real art bands, you know, bands, that's their whole deal. Um, but among like groups that were that popular, you know, you know, that it's, they were more sort of transgressive, like Chris was saying, than other groups in that position, you know? Uh, so it's like, it, well, also there, I think their music has aged really well because as you pointed out earlier, their sound was so unique just because of the way the band was constructed. Nobody would construct a rock band like that where you'd be built around an organist instead of a bassist. Um, like it, it just, nobody's really done it. So as the years pass, you listen to some of those songs that haven't really been replicated. But anyway, uh, there were checking yeah, out I mean, they, if you haven't would, listened to the doors. They would, they would have made, if, if he had lived and they had kept making records, I think some of those late 80s or like late 70s, early 80s Doors records would be awful. Like they oh, would yeah. be like sort of like, they would be like this, like this, like, like, you know, kind of Jefferson Starship type music. I mean, it, it just would not have worked. You know? Yeah. Chris Ryan, Chuck Klosterman, a pleasure as always. Uh, see you guys soon. 
Thanks, Bill. Bye. This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite, because I walk around LA every day, I like the joggers. I'm not jogging, I'm just walking fast. But if you're working out, I would try them out. And if you want something a little sleek, maybe business-like, maybe try the ABC slim fit trouser. But I am a joggers guy. I just... Once COVID happened, I was just like, I'm, I want to wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile. ABC pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com.